The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I want to bring our listeners a topic that is sorely needed in the realm of national discussion. It has to do with the field of eating disorders, and my guest is Dr. Michael Levine. He is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, where he taught for 33 years. He is an expert in the field of eating disorders. He is the author of two books. He is well-known internationally for his presentations on the topic. Welcome, Dr. Levine. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Melinda. It's an honor to be here. I wanted to start out by just having an expert's opinion or guidance, really, on how would you define eating disorders? I define an eating disorder as any set of attitudes about food, weight, and shape, and any set of eating habits or non-eating habits that cause inefficiency or disability that cause a great deal of misery to the person and or loved ones that cause disconnection between people, conflict, alienation and such, and also that disturb people, that frighten others or that frighten the person themselves. Mm -hmm. So I find it convenient to use the acronym IMAD, I-M-A-D, inefficiency, misery, alienation, disturbance. And that's the criteria that I use if someone comes to me and says, I think I have a problem or I think a friend of mine has a problem. Those are the four criteria I use. And do you have to have all four? Or if you just had one or two, would you consider a person to be disordered? I would consider two or more to be indicative of the possibility that the person has an eating disorder. My understanding of eating disorders was, you know, we classified them into certain definitions. So there was anorexia, there was bulimia, there are binge eating disorders. Are you able to classify these disorders into certain categories with specific symptoms? The answer to that, as it is to so many important questions, is yes and no. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence that people are able to distinguish in a reliable and valid fashion, the three disorders you mentioned, in addition to what's called eating disorders not otherwise specified, E-D-N-O-S. On the other hand, there's a lot of overlap between the disorders. Mm -hmm. There's also some movement between them, such that a person who has anorexia nervosa at ages 15 or 16 may well develop bulimia nervosa at ages 22 or 23. So it is possible to distinguish between them fairly well whether it's all that important to distinguish, for example, between bulimia nervosa and eating disorders not otherwise specified is still not clear. Mm -hmm. I think what all parents want to know is how can we prevent eating disorders? How can we raise healthy children so that they have a healthy relationship with food? Do you have any ideas or suggestions? I think that, as so often is the case with me, 
I think of it in terms of three things that I like to try to emphasize in my own life and emphasize to parents. The first would be to make eating an enjoyable, if not celebratory, act. And that's a complicated thing, as your program has demonstrated over the years. But to make sure that people understand where food is coming from, understand how food is prepared, understand that it's important to sit down and eat meals together, understand that mealtime should be a source of connection and communication and enjoyment for people, not a source of conflict and monitoring and scrutiny all the time. The second thing, I think it's very important for parents to do whatever they can to raise children with the skills for understanding strong emotions, for coping with stress, for understanding that life has ups and downs and what it means to accept that and roll with that and cope with it, and to understand that quite often it's important to determine what's eating you and what to do about it, not what you're eating. Mm. The third thing is is that there are a set, I think, of attitudes and practices I try to emphasize to parents and, and to people that I know that it's really important not to distinguish between good and bad foods. It's very important not to use fat as a dirty word or an epithet. It's very important not to make fun of fat people or body fat. It's very important not to define people in terms of their weight and their shape or their height, just as you wouldn't in terms of the color of their skin or their racial identity. I think there's a number of very basic things that not only parents can do, but coaches and uncles and grandparents and all of us as citizens can do to develop a healthier relationship, not just to food, but to our bodies and to the differences in bodies and such. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the good food, bad food issue. And I do talk about food in terms of good versus bad, but not in terms of the person eating that food being good or bad. But I look at a good food as one that's contributing to health, doesn't harm the environment in its production, is fair to workers and farm animals, and it's also accessible. So my definition of good food is probably not what the food industry might label as good or bad food. Or not what many people might label. Uh, Many people might say cookies are bad, right? vegetables are good, but I don't like vegetables as much, and so I wish cookies were good, and I'm going to try to be good by not eating cookies, but I mean that kind of dichotomizing or saying, well, fat is bad and protein is good. I mean, I think there's a lot of dichotomizing that goes on in our population in general, and of course in the extreme you get Particularly in bulimia nervosa and EDNOS, you have people who live their lives according to very strict rules about what is good food, what is bad food, what is good behavior, what's bad behavior. And none of us can really live that way. So, of course, it sets you up to fail. And just as you try to succeed in absolutes, you fail in absolutes. And so you get that, what the we'll say, what the heck phenomenon. Mm Mm-hmm. I failed, it's been an awful day, I've been rejected, nobody cares, to heck with it, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to binge on this, and then, oh my God, what have I done, I need to reset the mechanism, I need to be good, I was horrible and bad, 
so I'm going to purge in some way. So that kind of good-bad dichotomous thinking is one of the things that I believe parents can work against and coaches can work against and grandparents. And this, I believe, is everybody's responsibility, not just dietitians, physicians, psychologists, and such. I agree. I often have heard from athletes in particular who have gone down the path of an eating disorder or even women who just start out with dieting, and I'm highlighting women here, knowing full well that both men and women do suffer with eating disorders, but it's certainly more prevalent among the female population. One of the warnings that I always give people is never to go on a diet and that By dieting, of course, the real meaning of diet is a way of eating. Mm -hmm. But diet, as it is known in our society, is one of a restrictive nature. And so I often hear about women will tell me that they started on a diet and that that led them down a path of disordered eating. Or maybe they were in the presence of an athletic coach who maybe pinched just a little bit of skin and said, well, you need to lose that weight. And that set off a whole cascade of disordered eating habits that became firmly entrenched. Mm -hmm. And certainly there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that not just the, the behavior of trying to restrict and restrain your food intake to drive it from 1,800 calories a day to 12, but the whole mindset that goes with it, a mindset of dangerous and safe foods, good and bad foods, but also often a mindset of self-hatred, even self-loathing. I hate this part of my body. I hate my legs. I hate my stomach. It's just disgusting that I can pinch fat here. And and a, a set of perspectives that accompany the attempt to drive one's weight down. I don't look like the models in the magazines. I don't look like the popular people at school. If I changed my physique entirely. I would become the perfect person. Everybody would approve of me. Everything would be fine. So I think it's it's a combination of, quote, the diet, as well as the dieting mentality, the weight and shape concerns. There is a, no pun intended, a ton of evidence, a great mass of evidence to suggest that that mentality, which seems very reasonable to many people in our culture, is in fact one of the first steps for some people down the path toward not just disordered eating, but very severe eating disorder. Mm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Michael Levine. He is a professor emeritus of psychology at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, where he taught for 33 years. He is an international expert in the field of eating disorders, the author of two books, many prevention curriculum guides, and very well respected in your field, Dr. Levine. Now, I want to get into an area that you touched on with regard to the way in which women in particular are portrayed in the media, and men too. I mean, men, if you look at some of the images that men have received over the course of, say, 20 or 30 years, you know, men today have to be more muscular than they were decades ago. And women have gone through a range of periods where it was sexy to be skinny and then a little bit more voluptuous and then skinny again. But largely, especially with regard to the adaptation of computer technology, 
I think I was reading recently that there wasn't a single image on a magazine cover that hadn't been touched up in some way. And so women grow up in this environment of striving to look like people who really don't exist. Do you want to comment on that? Yes, and I think I'm not a historian, I'm not an anthropologist, but I would argue that mythology and fantasy have played a role in cultures across the globe and down through the ages. And I think there's a place for that in the development, the healthy development of any culture. We've gone from the images that are created and constructed and touched and retouched on magazines, in movies and such. We've gone from those as fantasy to those as a kind of omnipresent reality that Mm -hmm. all of us are affected by and in some ways comparing ourselves to people who in many ways don't exist. And I'm not talking about Spider-Man or right. uh, something of the, or Charlie's Angels. I'm talking about the images, as you say, that are carefully constructed by selecting certain kinds of models who are often very unique people, uh, women who are six foot two and weigh 150 pounds, and then retouching those in ways that are very artistic and very subtly done, and yet what you have is the creation and construction of what appears to be a very attractive, very salient, very powerful person who doesn't really exist. And even the models themselves don't look like, if you will, the models themselves. Right. Not their images. And so there's a great deal of evidence. Again, I would say a mountain of evidence to suggest that the models, and I don't use the term here as a pun, that is the standards by which one could create high risk for negative body image, for negative self-esteem, for unhealthy weight and shape practices, those models are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they're not seen as odd or unusual. They're seen in some ways as normative. The more you watch TV, the more magazines you read, the more time you spend on certain sites in the Internet, the more you're likely to believe that these things are normative that these are people who exist and that there are many such people and that if you're not one of them, there's something the matter with you. Mm -hmm. If you think for a moment, and if you allow me, think about the meaning of the word nervosa, as in anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. It's a word that people don't consider very often. Everybody's heard the word anorexia. Everybody knows the word bulimia. But if I were to ask you, even as a professional, what's the word nervosa mean? you probably would be hard-pressed without a good deal of thought to tell me. And I have the benefit of having thought about this a lot. (laughs) Right. But really, if you think about it, it tends to involve a high drive for thinness, a fear of fat, a definition of self in terms of weight and shape, a shaky self-concept, if not a low self-concept, often coupled with standards of perfection that are very hard to meet. It takes into account, incorporates a tendency to be anxious and self-conscious in the presence of others. Think about that list and tell me how many women of your acquaintance, professional or otherwise, do you know who wouldn't fit that definition? Absolutely. And that's the thing that really, I think, should trouble us as a society who's concerned about health and 
concerned about healthy eating and concerned about raising healthy children, how is it that many women like yourself or many men like me find it so hard to list more than one or two women that you know who have a positive body image? Mm-hmm. I think it's because our culture has created the conditions whereby the nervosa in anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa is in fact at low levels very widespread. Mm-hmm. If you add to that a number of other things, there are going to be some people who have been abused, there are going to be some people who, as you said, are operating in athletic or dance or other contexts where they're under a tremendous pressure to manage their weight and shape. The unhealthy attitudes we have about food in our culture in general, you add those things together and it's not surprising that you get figures for our society of somewhere on the order of probably 5 to 8% of girls and women past the age of 15 have some kind of significant weight and shape disorder. Mm-hmm. And that age is dropping. I think I read a study within the last five or six years showing that little girls at age eight were concerned about becoming fat. I've often thought about what is driving this. And, of course, we want to be attractive. That's probably a big driver just within our society to be accepted by others And being attractive increases the likelihood of that acceptance, or you want to be appealing to the opposite sex, perhaps. And so society gives us these norms about what we're supposed to look like in order to be attractive. In one of the interviews that you had, you mentioned this concept called media literacy, which I am a huge fan of myself. But I wonder if media literacy isn't perhaps at the core of getting to this. On the one hand, you want to be accepted and attractive, and yet on the other hand, we also need to be healthy. Do you think media literacy is a way to help people navigate that? I think so. And I would argue that what you are doing with your radio program and and in your professional life, as I understand it, is not only promoting media literacy, but what one of my colleagues, Neva Piran, in Toronto calls cultural literacy. When one sees an advertisement for a fast food franchise that is offering a hamburger and fries and a drink at a certain price, where does that meat come from? What is that that you're eating? What are those hamburger buns? How are they? I mean, to me, that is cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. And that may well be a start toward leading people to say, well, I don't want to buy into this. Right. I don't want to support a system in which, okay, I like the taste of this or this is pleasing to me, but when I think about where this comes from or how it's produced or how the crops are picked, this kind of consciousness raising to me I think is a very important part of what all of us as adults can do as citizens, whether it's being a nutritionist and and radio host as you are or being a professor as I was or being a parent or being people who who operate church groups in which they discuss meaningful topics on the weekends or on Wednesday evening. There's lots and lots of ways we can promote cultural literacy. What is it that we're doing with our lives? Uh, what is it that we're eating? What is it that we're watching? What is it that we're wearing? Now, one doesn't have to go through life in a constant state of self-consciousness, 
and yet I think it's very, very important mm-hmm. that people think carefully about what it is they're eating, what it is they're doing when they go to a fitness center, what it is they're doing when they encourage their sons or daughters to participate in high school athletics. I, I like to think of media literacy as one part, a significant part of this cultural literacy that leads us to really question constantly things in our lives. Because if we don't, we're not going to see progress in a number of areas that I think are really fundamentally important to to people in general. Uh, our safety, our health, our opportunities to to develop our skills and our interests, our opportunities to make peace instead of war and such. To me, being aware of the importance of the media in our lives, to be aware of it, to analyze it, to think about how we can respond to media that we like or that we don't like, to think about how we can create media that is healthier than much of the media that we're exposed to. As you know, more and more now with podcasts and with Facebook and with websites and with various kinds of things, even avatars in in online games, people are actively involved not only in consuming media but creating it. Exactly. And to me, that's an exciting opportunity for both girls and boys Many girls and boys that I talk to in high school and in college are very frustrated by some of the standards of beauty. They're outraged by some of the messages they see in advertising. They're outraged by some of the gender inequities and such. And they say, well, what can anybody do? And as you know, there are campus radio stations throughout the United States. There are newspapers on campus and otherwise. There are websites. There are blogs. There are all kinds of opportunities for various people, including parents, to express themselves in ways that have got to be more constructive than the kinds of negative messages that are, you know, everywhere in our society these days. Right. I do want to just touch on, in our remaining minutes, what a person might do if they suspect a friend, a loved one, may be suffering with disordered eating. Do you have any strategies for intervention or ways to gently help reverse the the negativity? I believe I do. I have at least what I consider a start. And that is to, first of all, make time to talk with that person in private, if at all possible. And to do so in a way that is not intimidating or threatening, if you can. That is to do yourself and maybe one other person whom the individual knows and trusts. The second thing I would do is I would always begin by saying, we're really concerned about you, or your father and I are really concerned about you. Then I would go to my third step, which is we have observed or we have heard the following, and I would be as explicit as possible in listing four or five signs that you have seen that have left you really concerned. It could be you're losing weight. It could be that dinner time has become so uncomfortable for you and so filled with tension for our family. It could be something like, I'm really concerned 
by what I found in the bathroom after meals. We need to talk about this. So something very specific. And then I say forth to the person, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I do know that this is serious. And I sometimes will say, my criteria are inefficiency, misery, alienation, disturbance, and this all seems to be happening with you. I believe very strongly that this needs to be evaluated by a professional. I always avoid, or I never go to, I think you have bulimia nervosa. I know you have an eating disorder, so admit it. I never say what it might be because I'm not a clinician. Most parents are not clinicians. The issue really isn't an accurate diagnosis. It's getting help for somebody who's suffering and whose life is being compromised. And then I say fifth to the person, what can I do to be of support here? What can I do to help you get the situation evaluated? And if it is a psychological problem or if it is a significant problem, I'll be here to help you through this in any way I can. So I try then to keep that door open. If the person says to me, it's fine, uh, thanks for asking. I say, you know what, I hear your words, but in your eyes, and, and I just don't feel it's fine. I really think you ought to have this evaluated. If you're not ready right now, I'm available to talk, about, to talk about this if you change your mind. If you're really, really frightened as a parent or as a spouse or as a loved one, then I would get a little more insistent and say, I'm really frightened. I'm really concerned about this. You really need to get this evaluated. Let's figure out a way to do this together. And if the person says, you know, to heck with you, leave me alone, if you're a parent, you may have to take more active step, but at the same time, you want, if at all possible, to do this together with the person, even though it's really hard. You can say, I know it's really hard. I know this is difficult. But we're here. It's not about who's at fault here. It's about what we need to do next. So those are the things that I try to encourage when I talk with parents or other faculty members or coaches. It's not about diagnosis. It's not about asserting your will. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about reaching out to someone who's suffering and being understanding and empathic while at the same time insistent that something is the matter here and you really feel strongly that something ought to be done. Well, Dr. Levine, you had recommended a website that I agree that is absolutely wonderful. It's the National Eating Disorders Association, and the website is www.nationaleatingdisorders.org. And there's a lot of information, questions and answers, programs. There's also a wonderful information and referral helpline, and the number for that is 800-931-2237. So, again, it's nationaleatingdisorders.org, 
800-931-2237. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Levine, for being my guest today. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Levine. He is a professor emeritus of psychology at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, where he taught for 33 years, and he is an internationally recognized expert on eating disorders, and I might add a compassionate clinician or compassionate psychologist. In closing, I want to let our listeners know that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this very important conversation, and thank you so much for contributing to the conversation, Dr. Levine. Oh, it's my pleasure, Melinda. I hope we'll have a chance to do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. 